Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ben. And Father, we uh, pause just for a moment to thank you for your word and ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, you know the condition of every one of us. You know our thoughts before we think them. You know the words before they're even on our tongues. You know us inside and out. And so, Lord, we would pray that you would do uh, all that is within your heart for us this morning. As we have been worshiping you and singing to you, I pray that your spirit is softening our hearts, moving us to love you more deeply, causing us, Lord Jesus, to become more like you. As we praise you, as we behold your glory, it changes us. Lord, we have sung about your glory. We now want to see your glory as it is manifested through the life of these 12 apostles. And I pray for help in doing that. Lord Jesus, let the enemy not um, be able to thwart anything that you would do and want to accomplish by your will. We are completely dependent upon you. And so we would ask for your help and the presence of your spirit as we think about your word. Help us by giving us understanding and let us truly see you, Lord Jesus, in all of these words. May your power and your authority shine forth. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this portion of Scripture we come to this morning has to do with the call and the commissioning of the Twelve Apostles as we're finding um, this, this Gospel of Matthew opening up before us. We're, we're continuing on, and this morning we see um, a little way of catching us up to where we are. Jesus has been preaching. He's been moving throughout the land, going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching and teaching. Um, he has been healing every disease. If you, if you have your Bible, just keep it open to this, this portion of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. In the previous paragraph, you'll see in verse 35 um, that he has healed every disease and every affliction. That's the word that keys us in because uh, we see it again in uh, verse 2, when, uh, verse 1, when Jesus gave this authority the same authority that he had to his apostles. So that's the connecting thought between these two units of Scripture. In Matthew's thinking, um, because the, as we see verse 1, he called to himself his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. There's that phrase. 
So what's unique about this next paragraph is the kingdom is advancing because Jesus has previously, he's the only one who has done those kinds of miracles. He's the only one who has possessed the power to heal every disease and every sickness and cast out demons. Jesus has been the only person doing that. What's new about this section is now he's going to share that authority with his disciples. He calls apostles. So the kingdom is advancing. So this is, this is a step in a progression of what we have been seeing. And Jesus now moves forward by taking the authority that he has, which if you've been here listening to what we've been seeing through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been all about the authority of Jesus. He's been putting it on super display. The jumbotron of Holy Scripture is what he has been pushing forward. And now Jesus takes that authority and he shares it. That's, that's new. That is different. And we see in verse 1, he calls his disciples. Now this, this call, this is not the first call. Jesus has already gathered the twelve back in the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 4. Um, in the middle ways, we see Jesus has already called many of the disciples to follow him. So the twelve has been numbered, but he is now giving a call. And the word, the Greek word helps us is proskeleo, which means an urgent invitation to follow to a task. Right, so it's a, it's a calling to the, uh, enter into the authority of someone, but also then to go out in a task. And so it's a particular kind of calling to go out. It's a calling for a mission of a going forward. So this is not Jesus merely naming these 12 apostles for the first time, but it's the first time that he grants them the same authority that he has, and then he sends them out. So this calling is a kind of commissioning. It's, it's a moving. So it, it's not a come to me kind of call. That has already happened. He's already said to them, follow me. This is a call that is, is preparing them to go out. And so Jesus is, this is a call of commissioning. And we see this, we know this is true for a couple of reasons. Two reasons. First of all, because of the use of the word apostle. You know, as Matthew calls, these are not just the 12 disciples, they are, but he says he, they're, they're also apostles. And Luke explicitly tells us in chapter 6 that Jesus named them apostles. So what is an apostle? Have you bumped into any lately? So the, the word apostle is one who is sent out with a special, as a special messenger on behalf of another and shares in the authority of the one who sent him or commissioned him on a particular task. So the calling is to a task, but the apostleship it points to the fact of being sent out. And so there's this sending notion that is in the word apostle. Now, the word apostle is used in two different ways in Scripture. There is a broad meaning and a very narrow meaning. The broad meaning simply can be a messenger, someone who's carrying a message. We see this when Paul writes to about Epaphroditus, who he sent as a messenger of his need. He came from a church carrying goods that Paul needed, supplies that he needed, and then he, Paul sent him back with a letter 
He is a messenger. There are three times when the word apostle is used in the New Testament, out of the 79 times it's totally used, um, three times it's used in this broad sense of just a messenger. The other 74 times or so that it's used, it refers to a specific individual who's qualified by two things. So the vast majority of the uses of the word apostle in the New Testament refers to someone who meets these two qualifications. First, an apostle had to have personally witnessed Jesus in the flesh with his own eyes. So he had to physically meet Jesus. That's the first qualification. Paul tells us this. And then the second qualification is, not only did you see Jesus physically in your flesh and in his flesh, but then Jesus sent you out with a mission. Sent you out with a task. So those two things, Paul says, are the qualifications for apostle, and that is the vast majority of the ways in which that word apostle is used in Scripture. And given those two qualifications, would you expect to bump into an apostle? No, absolutely not. No more of those who have physically seen the, the risen Lord and heard him say with his voice, go out. And so that's the first reason. The second reason is because Jesus then sends them out in verse 5, which is not a part of your reading, but if you have your copy of Scripture, you look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. So he commissioned them to go out with the gospel, which is what we're going to look at uh, in the coming weeks. But right now, we want to point um, this one fact in verse 1. He gave them authority. He gave them authority. So this is Jesus moving forward. What kind of authority is he giving them? He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Now we've seen this as a summary statement at the beginning of of chapter 4, that that's how Jesus' ministry began. That's how he made known that he was the distinct choice of, of Messiah, is because he did what no one else did. He cast out demons with the word, he healed every disease, and he healed every sickness. And now he is saying to his twelve that he's calling and appointing as apostles, I want you to go and do the same. Now that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me that Jesus would give that kind of authority to this group. Do you think about the twelve disciples? These twelve apostles? That's what we're going to think about this morning together. But why does he do this? He looks out of the crowds. Remember last week? He has compassion on people because he sees they are harassed and helpless. They have no leader like sheep without a shepherd. And the harvest is plentiful, he says. The time is right. People need to be brought into the kingdom. People need to be hearing the gospel and seeing the power and the reality of the, of the kingdom of heaven present on earth and then brought in by faith to Jesus to see him as the Messiah. And so he says, there is a massive need. And so we need workers. And now he then says, I will give my authority. I will share it with these 12 individuals. And so today, what I want to do with the rest of our time, you see them taking this authority, sharing it with the disciples, the 12 apostles. And so I wonder, how many of you know what happened to all 12 of these men? What unfolded, maybe one or two of them, first and last perhaps, but what about all the guys in the middle? What did they do? Where did they go? What were they like? So we're going to take a quick survey of the next few minutes and look at each one of these men because they're each named, individually named. So Peter is the first one. First, Simon Peter. 
I, I, some of you are visual learners, so I took the risk of popping up an image. So we're going to show you an image. Obviously, it's somebody's, somebody's imagination. I have no idea what these guys look like. And yet, if it's helpful for you, look at the picture. If it's not, this is Rembrandt, by the way, a very thoughtful picture. If it's not helpful, just ignore it and try to, to, to have a, a visual image by the words that are chosen. Peter's first. In all four listings of all of the apostles, he's always listed first. Uh, I don't think that's simply because the, the word first here is not merely pointing to the fact that who's the first guy on the list. Because anybody with minimal powers of observation would be able to see that. He's saying he's ranking first as a kind of leader among the, the 12 apostles. And so he's always listed first. Um, he's the one whose name appears most in the New Testament, apart from uh, Paul and Jesus. Uh, Peter is next on the list. Um, he's always first in the listing of the apostles. And guess who's last? Judas, always. So there seems to be this kind of ranking. Um, he's called Simon. Right? His, his name was Simon until he bumped into Jesus. And then in John 1, uh, first chapter of John, we, when, G, when Peter first meets Jesus, he's called Simon, and here's what Jesus says. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. Petros is the, the Greek word for rock. So he's, he's saying, you're going to be the foundation. You are you are a, like a rock to me, a, a solid presence. And, and so Peter becomes that. He becomes the kind of the glue that holds the disciples together. He's a fisherman. He owns a small business, he and his brother Andrew. So he's a small businessman. He knows what it's like to, to run an operation. He's up every morning fishing, um, making his living on the Sea of Galilee. He grew up, was born in Bethsaida, which is on the north northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He then moved somewhat south down the shoreline to Capernaum and set up camp there. It was a, a major city with a lot of crossroads and travel, so it was a great place to sell lots of fish. He bought a house in Capernaum. He got married and probably had kids. We're not told, but he was married. We know that because Jesus healed his mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. So Peter's a married man. He's, he probably has a family. And yet, what do we know about his personality? He's a little bold. He's a little brash. He's quick to speak. Uh, he, he, in fact, speaks more than anybody else in the New Testament, as far as the other disciples combined. We have more from Peter than all of the other disciples. Um, and so he becomes the leader of the Twelve. Uh, his ministry happens after the persecution in, um, in Jerusalem. He then leaves and goes to Rome. If you remember, he was arrested, thrown in prison, and King Agrippa was planning to execute him. And there was an all-night prayer meeting among those who loved him, and an angel came and set Peter free out of prison, led him out and, and freed. And after he left, we don't know exactly when uh, it happened, but he went to Rome and spent uh, about 25 years as a, as a preaching pastor there in, in the church at Rome. Uh, church tradition tells us that there was a concubine of Nero who heard the gospel and became a believer, and Nero was infuriated that this, this woman had become a believer, and so he ordered Peter arrested and thrown in jail. He stayed in jail for nine months, and then he was brought out 
and crucified. And Eusebius, which is a, a lot of this information that I'm going to share with you this morning, comes from Eusebius. His Annals of Church History. You can go and dig it up if you want to do the homework and read through it. But a lot of this comes from Eusebius. He says that it, his, Peter traveled with his wife, by the way. Paul tells us that when Peter traveled, he took his wife with him. And in this case, she was living with him in Rome. And according to Eusebius, who's quoting the testimony of Clement, part of Nero's torture of Peter was to make him watch his wife be crucified. And it is reported that as she was being led away to be crucified, he said to her, remember our Lord. Peter was then scourged and himself crucified, but yet upside down because he claimed that he was unworthy to die in the same position that his Lord Jesus had died. That's Peter. That's Peter. Next, we see in verse 1, Andrew, his brother. Now, Andrew, Peter's brother, so they both were fishermen. Andrew is actually the first of the 12 who Jesus called to be his disciple. Um, he's, he's a partner with Peter. He actually introduced Peter to Jesus. Andrew is one of those guys who's constantly helping to introduce people to Jesus, is what we see. Um, he, is, he was first a disciple of John the Baptist. Before he began following Jesus, he had been following John the Baptist. So, so he's ready. Andrew's waiting for the consolation of Israel, you might say. He's looking for the Messiah to come. He's, he's expectant and looking for Messiah. And so he, when John said about Jesus, there, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew left John the Baptist and went straight after Jesus. He's like, I'm serving the Messiah. And so he was with him. So Andrew, deeply dedicated person, small businessman too. And then his ministry, after um, leaving Jerusalem and Judea, he went north along the uh, northern shore of the Baltic Sea into Romania and Ukraine, um, where he served and, and preached the gospel for a great number of years. As it happened, a governor's wife became a believer. The governor was also angry at this and ordered her to recant her faith and uh, criticized Peter, I mean Andrew, for preaching against the idols and the idolatry that he found. And so in anger, he had him thrown in jail and ordered later to be crucified. But not nailed to the cross, tied to it in order to prolong his suffering. And he lived evidently for two days being tied to this cross. And the whole time he was uh, tied to the cross, he was preaching to everyone who was passing by and sharing the gospel. So this is um, Andrew. Third, and I'm sure at some point I'm going to get these names mixed up. So bear with me. But I'll do my best. James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee. He's the older brother of John. So we have another set of brothers. So there's Peter and Andrew. And then there's James and John, two sets of brothers who are the disciples of Jesus. Um, the son of Zebedee. Zebedee probably was a prominent person because he's constantly... Those two are always James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So Zebedee might have been a rather influential small business owner. He owned a fishing uh, business also. They worked in partnership with Peter and Andrew. So they helped one another, they lived in the same town, they knew each other, um, but the James, um, he, he is called uh, with his brother the Sons of Thunder. So when you think about what kind of personality did these two guys have, James had a very fiery personality. 
So we get this because at one point Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem and he was going through, he wanted to go through Samaria. He sent two of his disciples ahead and the Samaritans refused to allow them to welcome Jesus into the town because he was going to Jerusalem. So their contention was, if you're going to Jerusalem, but there's this division between right worship that the Samaritans held happened to be in Mount Gerizim, while the Jews held that worship was to happen in Jerusalem. So when the Samaritans refused to welcome Jesus, James and John both say to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? Right? And, and Jesus, as if Jesus couldn't do that if he wanted to himself, and yet they take this upon themselves, a fiery person, and they're ticked off that Jesus has been shunned, and so they are aggressive, a little bit overly ambitious. They think a little too highly of themselves, by the way. These two brothers contrived with their mother to get mom to ask Jesus that when he enters into his kingdom, could they have the right hand and the left hand seat? They wanted the best seats in the house. And we'll get mom to ask the question because surely Jesus will answer, Mother. And you know, you know how it turned out, right? Jesus said, you don't have any idea what you're asking. Um, God the Father is, is managing the seating chart in heaven, so don't worry about it. So in the end, uh, James is the first of the apostles to be martyred. Um, he is still in Jerusalem. He had been preaching. Herod Agrippa arrested him, threw him into jail. He saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he then had him um, executed. But it's interesting because the, uh, the testimony of, of Clement, again, is this. The man who was the primary accuser, um, who brought him to court in and, and, and claiming that he was teaching falsely, um, was so moved when he was able to stand trial, this man listened to, to James's testimony and became so moved and convinced that James was actually telling the truth. And so he... In the middle of all of this trial on his, uh, for his life and death, this man becomes a believer and says, I, I believe you. So the emperor, Herod Agrippa, was so enraged, he ordered the both of them to be beheaded at the same time. And so as they're being taken away to be beheaded, the, the man who had brought him to trial asked for forgiveness. So here's the guy who's responsible for your death, and you're going to die with him. And along the way, he asks for forgiveness. And, and Clement says that after thinking about this for a few minutes, uh, James said to him, Peace be with you, and gave him a kiss of friendship. If, if somebody was responsible for your death, would that be your response? Pretty incredible. And so he was beheaded, the first of the twelve, in around A.D. 44. And now John, his brother. So there's James, there's John. John is the younger brother of James, also the son of Zebedee. He is often pictured as a very youthful person. It was uh, understood that he was called into apostleship as a very young person, so he's often pictured as, as very youthful. He often has a cup, um, it, because legend has it, or the stories has it, that he at one point drank some poison um, and nothing happened to him. And so this is a reminder of God's providential care over him. We know a lot about John. We know much about him. He's the one who, uh, he's also a fisherman, so his occupation was a fisherman, but he's the one who is responsible for writing the Gospels, the three epistles, and also Revelation. Now, when, when I came to this and thinking about Revelation, 
Um, I thought, can I just show you a, a little screenshot of your Bible? Um, every one of you, if you look at the book, you'll notice it's actually singular. It's the revelation of John. You'll see that the S is many. I prayed about this and really felt strongly that the Lord wanted me to share this with you. Because we oftentimes, it's the revelations of John as if there's more than one, but there's not. It's a singular revelation, which is one uh, giant re uh, revealing of God's providential plan to John. So I just wanted to point that out. It's a little pedantic, I understand, but I thought I would help you. Sometimes English lessons are, are helpful. Grammar lessons are helpful in plural and singular are also very helpful. But we know much about him. He's also a son of thunder. He's, he's a passionate individual. Um, but... His humility comes out in the fact that when he writes his gospel, he doesn't even name himself. He doesn't even share. He simply refers to himself in the third person, that the disciple whom Jesus loved. Humility found its way into his life. And in his ministry, uh, and this, he had good reason to boast. If you remember, he's one of the three inner um, disciples who are passionately near Jesus at all times, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and in the bedroom when he was raising this little girl from the dead and nobody else was there, uh, in the Garden of Eden, they went closer to him and prayed. There are all of these ways in which he was brought near to Jesus, and yet he comes out very, very humble. In his ministry, uh, during the persecution in Jerusalem, John left and went to Ephesus. So he left Jerusalem, he went to Ephesus, and pastored there and planted a church uh, as well. During the great persecution under Domitian, um, he tried to have John killed and failed. And so in failing to kill him, and some reports say that the trying to kill him was actually pitch him into a, a vat of boiling oil. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's, that's what I read. But he, the, the attempt on his life failed, and so exile was the next best thing. So John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which is a little tiny island off the southeastern shore of, of Greece and the western side of Turkey um, in, in the Aegean Sea. And that's where he lived for many, a great number of years. It was a prison community, a community of exile. He lived in a cave there. That's where he received the revelation uh, of the unfolding of the end of time. John is the only one, the only uh, one of the twelve who actually died of natural causes. He's the only one who was not martyred for his faith. He lived to be an old age. When Domitian um, was disposed and Nerva became the emperor, he allowed John to return, to leave Patmos and to return to Ephesus. And so he spent his latter days back in Ephesus. And it is said that he was so frail in his old age that often he would be carried into the worship of the God's people. And he often said, my little children, love one another. That was his repeated phrase. You know, what, what are the phrases that you're known for? You have, you have a set of phrases that you often use. Um, my family is uh, coming up with a bingo card for the phrases that I use regularly in, in preaching. I don't know if this, this my wife's probably going to kill me for saying this, but um, it's really funny because there are some things that I, I say. So I've seen the list, and one of them is, I'll die, I'll go to my grave, saying, read your Bible. What are those phrases that you say continually? This is one of them. It is repeated, but this is constantly what he said. My little children love one another. So if you want to say something to people, say that. He was often asked, why do you say this? And he said, because it is the Lord's command, and if alone this be done, then it is enough. How sweet. If I could just get people to love one another. 
I'm just going to say that to, to my dying days. Would you just love each other? I think that's uh, rather helpful. So there's John. Number five, now we mentioned, is Philip. Philip is fourth. Always, I mean, in all of the lists of the, of the disciples, he's always listed fourth. He is referred to as Philip the Apostle to separate him from Philip the Evangelist, which we find in Acts. Not the same person, two different guys. He also was born in Bethsaida, along with Philip, and I mean, with Andrew and Peter. So he probably was a fisherman, probably knew them before coming to faith and uh, beginning to follow Jesus. But his personality comes out, um, and we meet him in, in John. Uh, John is the only one who tells us what he says, but Philip... Um, comes about uh, from uh, John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness. Philip helps him to come to, um, he says, uh, we have found, uh, Jesus went looking for Philip and said, follow me. So Jesus looked for Philip. He's the only disciple that we're told he went seeking. Everybody else came to Jesus, but Jesus went looking for Philip, which is a very interesting story. So he says, uh, follow me, which he did. Philip, then after following Jesus and bumping into him, uh, went and got Nathaniel and brought Nathaniel to Jesus and introduced him. And he said this to Nathaniel. It's just John chapter 1. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We found the Messiah is what he said. That's incredible to me at such an early stage. Philip bumps into Jesus, has, he spends a day with him, and then he becomes convinced that this is the Messiah. So it's pretty incredible. And he knew his, 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 uh, his Bible and was paying attention to his Bible greatly. His ministry then um, takes place in Phrygia, which is in modern-day Turkey. So he left Jerusalem, he went into the central part of Turkey, and ministered in Heliopolis, uh, a city there, where he found people worshiping a large serpent. And so he preached against the idolatry for a season of time, and then in the end, uh, evidently they would not turn away from their idolatry, and so he killed the serpent, which enraged everyone. He was proving that this is not a god, and it enraged the leaders of the town, and so they scourged him and then finally crucified him. So that's Philip. Uh, sixth is Bartholomew. Bartholomew is probably the same person who is called Nathaniel in John's Gospel. This is, he's often associated with Philip. We find those two together. Um, he, along with uh, the others, is probably also a fisherman, but we might just call him Bartholomew Nathaniel. Um, or Bart Nat, if it's easier. We have two names. Many of the disciples do have two names, but Bartholomew or Nathaniel, um, these two are often together, and so this is probably the, the same person. He is the one who, who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's very skeptical about who Jesus could, Jesus from the Messiah from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see which he did, and then he quickly changed his mind. But what Jesus says about him is incredible. John chapter 1, Jesus says, An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. you know anybody that you could say that about? I, this is a person in whom there's no deceit. There's no lying, no deception, no faking, no deceiving, no stretching the truth. A man in whom there is no deceit. 
Pretty amazing. His ministry took him into India, where he, uh, according to Eusebius, took Matthew's Gospel, which was written in Hebrew, he both translated it into Greek and also into at least one Indian language and had a, an incredible ministry while he was there. He then left, went into Armenia and Azerbaijan, preaching the gospel where he apparently died um, and also was crucified, but reportedly was taken down from crucifixion just before he died so that he could be beheaded. Some also say that he was tortured by being flayed alive um, while he was still living. It is absolutely incredible. So he also um, was killed for the sake of the gospel. Thomas, we have number seven, Thomas. We probably know him as Doubting Thomas. We think of him that way. But uh, he is called in Scripture Didymus, which means twin. So he had a twin brother or sister. We don't quite know. Um, but he's the, one of the only twins reported in Scripture. His personality we see uh, at Lazarus' death. And you remember the story? Uh, Lazarus has died. Jesus told his disciples, Lazarus has died. And he delayed for two days. And then finally when he went, he said, I go to awaken him from sleep. All of the disciples misunderstood. And so if he's sleeping, we'll just wake him up. And Jesus said, he's dead. And I'm going to go and wake him up. And the disciples said, Jesus, remember that when we were just there, that the people were trying to kill you, they're trying to stone you, and you want to go back? And Jesus said, yes, we're going back. And then here's what we see Thomas saying. He says, then let us go that we may die with him. And I think what he means is, I'm with you, Jesus. Okay, you want to go back to a place that just tried to kill you. I'm with you. I don't want to be separated from you. I want to be with you. Wherever you go, even if that means into the face of death, I'm going with you. So his loyalty was incredible. And I think that's why what we know about him after the resurrection, he, he suddenly went into a place of despair, being separated from Jesus. And so he, I, I won't believe unless I can touch him. If I can put my finger into his wounds... Then I will believe. And you remember, he wasn't with them when Jesus first appeared. He's off by himself. He's somewhere else. He's not with the rest of the disciples. And so he, he, was, he was isolated. He had separated himself. But when he saw Jesus, he didn't have to touch him. He simply said, and, and I, I, in my mind, I, I saw Thomas bowing before Jesus. And I went and looked. I can't find that in Scripture anywhere. But in my, I think he bowed. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but in Todd's head, I see Thomas bowing before Jesus, and he said, you know what he said? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. So Thomas also went to India and landed in Kerala. He planted several churches there, then traveled into Chennai, where he was run through with a spear for the sake of the gospel. Matthew the tax collector. We know a lot about Matthew. We've been spending time with him. You know he's a tax collector. He's an employee of the Roman government. You know he was viewed as a traitor by his fellow disciples. Uh, all of the people would have avoided him. You know, the hatred with tax collectors. And so he lived in Capernaum, uh, isolated and away from himself, but serving the Roman government. And yet Jesus calls him... We know that in his writing, he desired to, to point out the way in which Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And so his, his, all of his gospel points to the fulfillment. 
His ministry took him into Ethiopia, where he planted churches and ministered in, in Jesus' name for several years. Uh, but in about A.D. 60, he also was slain by a halberd, which I didn't know what that was, but it's a long pointy spear with an axe head on the end of it. He was run through with a halberd, according to church tradition. So Matthew 2 poured out his blood for the sake of the gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus, is known as James the Younger or James the Less. And that language can also mean the short one. And so he is often called Little James, as in short in stature. I don't know if that's exactly true, but that's somehow how he is known. Um, he is uh, the son of Alphaeus. So is Matthew Levi, was also son of Alphaeus. Some have thought these two were also brothers, but we're nowhere told that. And there's no sh the Bible's not shy about making clear family relationships, so it's probably true that he did not, uh, wasn't brothers with him. But this James is not the brother of Jesus, nor is it the, the other apostle James, James the elder. He's James the younger. Uh, we don't know much about him. Um, but apparently, according to tradition, he, he died while preaching in Jerusalem. While preaching, a crowd turned and stoned him to death while he was preaching. So he died in Jerusalem. Thaddeus is an interesting character. He's the, the next. Uh, he's also called Labius, Judas, uh, son of James, and Thaddeus. So the church historian Jerome called him Trinomius because he has three names. He, um, interesting in personality, uh, at the Last Supper, he asks Jesus one question. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? It appears that he's deeply concerned for non-Christians. He's, he's concerned for people who don't know. He says, how is it you're, we're going to understand who you are and the world won't. So he has a love for um, the lost and for those outside his ministry took him to Turkey, where in the city of Edessa, the king, who's called King Abgar, had heard about Jesus' ability to heal and asked for help for someone to come and heal him. And Thaddeus goes to this king and in the name of Jesus heals him, um, along with a number of other people in his uh, region. And, and many came to Christ through his, his ministry. Um, he is... Uh, there's conflicting information on how he died. He's either crucified, is one story, or he was clubbed to death, is the other story. But Thaddeus also poured out his blood for the sake of the gospel. Simon the Zealot. Um, the Zealot. This is a uh, pointer to the political activism of the day. The, the Zealots were those who hated the occupation of Rome and sought to do everything from terrorism to acts of violence in order to free Israel from uh, falling under the, the Roman uh, authority. In all of the lists, he's always listed 11th, right in front of Judas. So it might have been that he and Judas hung out together. We don't know, but they're always listed closely together. But he's a, a, a very a politically engaged disciple, uh, more than any of the others. His ministry took him uh, out of Rome, uh, out of um, Jerusalem, and um, into regions of Egypt, Africa, Libya, and Mauritania, and even Great Britain. He went into Britain and preached the gospel there, which is where the preaching got him either crucified or cut in half, are the two accounts of his death. 
he too poured out his blood for the sake of the gospel. And then finally Judas, which I think we all know about Judas who betrayed him. And so I won't belabor the point, but um, we understand that Jesus chose Judas as a part of the fulfillment of God's plan, that one of them would betray him. And so Jesus says in John 6, that I not choose you 12 and yet one of you is a devil? Uh, Judas's betrayal was not a surprise to Jesus. He knew from the beginning, we're told, those who believed in him and those who did not. And so, okay, there they are. There's those 12. I'd, growing up, I, I'd never heard anybody talk about what happened to those disciples or those 12. And I wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing? All of these guys, political activists, fishermen, uneducated individuals, selfish individuals, loudmouth individuals, people who, who, who are completely um, blowing off steam and ready to kill people, uh, all of them, and, and all of these people Jesus gathers together, and these are those whom he gives his authority to go into the world and preach the gospel and heal? A messed up bunch of confused individuals? It's, it's crazy to me. And who are they? They're about as average as you get. They're the people you work with. The, the kinds of personalities that we see Jesus choosing are those who, with his power and blessing and authority, change the world. So don't think, because you're not great or possess some kind of magnificent, attractive personality, that you can do nothing for the kingdom. It's not about personal qualifications or personal eloquence. What the gospel goes out when we trust in the power of God and the sovereignty of the Lord and the authority of Christ. It's not about personalities. This is about faith in the Lord. And everyone of these disciples, except John, spilled their blood for the sake of the name of Jesus. And I wonder, would you, you willing to die for the gospel? I hope you never have to. But it moves me to ask the question, do we, do we love this gospel so much that we would go to great expense in order to see that people know it? Thomas went halfway around the globe in order to get to India. I can't imagine the difficulty of what that would have been like. How did he do it? He sailed, he took a donkey, he walked, hiked. I mean, where did he stay? How did he pack a lunch? And then he did it. The gospel was that important. Every one of these men, I hope you see, gave their life for a message. What are we giving our lives for? Does the gospel move us with this extent? Do, are, we, are we talking about the truth of the gospel with the people we do know? You don't have to travel the globe. Just, are, we, are we speaking about Jesus here and now, at home, at work? Because there is a fact here. I believe these men truly understood Jesus is the only way to eternal life. I believe they were convinced that if we don't share the gospel with the world, salvation will not come. And so we will do exactly what Jesus said. Go out in my name and share the gospel. Is Jesus that glorious to you, I suppose, is the question. Do, do you see him as that glory, glorious, as, as worthy 
of, of pouring out your life, your energy, your time for? Does he shape what you do with your life? Is he part of your thinking and your planning? He is that glorious for these guys because they died in order to introduce people to him. Do you love him that much? Do you see his glory that powerfully? And, and does that motivate us? I, I pray that it would. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we see examples before us of, of men whom you granted to share your authority and to take the truth of the gospel to those who are lost. And Lord, I, I don't know if there's anyone listening to my voice who uh, does not know what it means to have a personal relationship to, to, with Jesus, who is the resurrected Lord and Savior. But I pray if there's anyone listening to my voice who does not know Jesus personally, that today would be a day where that changes. So Father, would you, would you grant faith? Would you grant the, the truth to be felt in our souls, that if we confess with our mouths and we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, then we will be saved. And Lord, I pray that that is a fact that continues to compel us and continues to move us even to this very day. May we not grow comfortable, Lord. We've, some of us have heard the gospel thousands of times, and yet there are people around this planet who have never heard it even once. And Lord, I pray, bless your people here in this room who represent you and who love your name because the world is here in Boston. And God, I pray, pour out your spirit upon us as your people that we would represent you well, that we would speak of you highly, that we would maintain the kind of faithfulness to the ends of our lives as we've seen modeled before us in the disciples that you chose. So anoint us, Lord Jesus, to speak on your behalf. And I pray, Holy Spirit, move in the hearts of those who need to know you more deeply, who need to be set free, we see these words. You, you granted the, your disciples the authority to set people free from the attacks of Satan and to deliver them from, from darkness, from disease, from anything that would enslave us. And Lord Jesus, I, I know it is your will that we first put our faith and trust in you. Sometimes you do heal of disease. Sometimes you do set free from demonic strongholds. And I pray you do that this morning. Oh Lord Jesus, let your will come among us. Let us see the glory of Christ and let us behold your power and wonder and joyfully surrender our lives to you. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.